arms. Give it your all. We'll drink the wine to the corpse dry and kiss the girls and then the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance with Jack of the Shadows. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of Red Arm. Today we're jumping into Chapter Six, Doorways. So we have jumped points of view. Um, I'm not sure exactly which point of view because I think it's Egwene's, but it's it's not very specific. It doesn't like say from this person. Like it it mentions Elaine, Nynaeve, Egwene, and Moraine. So I think it's from Egwene's perspective if I recall correctly. So try to take it from that perspective. Um, but basically we start out with Moraine having returned from Rand, Rand's rooms. And she starts just ripping into him. He, Rand is a mule headed stone willed fool of a, a, a man. <laughs> Very original, Moraine. You should definitely stick to your day job. Uh, <laughs> but, but yes, so we start out the chapter with Moraine literally just insulting Rand. And it's like, yay! But Elaine doesn't seem to like that very much. Um, well, not, not the insult, but the experience with Rand specifically. Um, and... <laughs> Her her childhood childhood nurse Lini uh, had some sayings like you could weave silk from pig bristles before you could make a man anything but a man, and of course in her mind is well, that's not an excuse for Rand. <laughs> it's like well because if you can't do it you can't do it, and then that's kind of the point. Um, so then we go um back to Moraine. Well, not really Moraine. It's ninety first. And Nani's just like, you know, the whole mule-headed, stone-willed fool of a man kind of thing. Nani's like, yeah, well, we breed them that way in the two rivers. And she's kind of like suppressing her smiles and satisfaction just because she likes seeing Moraine all annoyed. And she obviously doesn't hide her dislike from Moraine half as well as she thinks she does. But And he's like, the two rivers women never had any trouble with them. But Egwene gives her a startled look, which was a lie big enough to warrant having her mouth washed out. <laughs> it doesn't obviously work that way in the two rivers. Women think they have control over the men, but the men are too stubborn to be completely controlled. But to be fair, the women are the same way. Men find women too stubborn to control and the women don't want to be controlled either. Um, but then Moraine's, you know, about to respond to Nynaeve in a little bit harsher terms, but Elaine stirs, but can't find anything that's really to say, but Elaine keeps thinking about, you know, basically Rand. <laughs> but Egwene's like, well, what did he do, Moraine? And then her eyes swivel over to Egwene and makes Egwene step backwards. Snaps her fan open and starts fluttering it at her face. But then Moraine finishes her gaze uh, sweep, I guess is the best way to call it, by going and looking at Joya and Amiko. With Joya watching warily and the other one unaware that anything is happening, but the far wall is there. 
So Elaine gives a small start, realizing that Joya was not bound. And she checks the shield, blocking the woman from the true source. And I'm just like, well, unless she lunges at you, there's not much she can do. But she hopes that no one notices that she's, you know, had jumped at that. You know, Joya frightened her nearly to death, but Egwene and Eve were no more scared of the woman than Moraine was. But it's difficult being brave, being the daughter heir of Andor, as she should be. And she finds herself wishing she could manage as well as these two. But Moraine's like, well, the guards, I saw them in the corridor, still, and never thought... But she smooths her dress, pretty typical behavior in this series, composing herself, and then... <laughs> she, Elaine couldn't believe that she'd seen Moraine so out of herself, but the said I had caused, and it's like, well, I mean, yeah. Had it been anybody else who's off balance, Joy would have said something subtle and two meanings calculated and upset them a little bit more, if they had been alone, at least. But with Moraine, she just watched uneasily and silently. But Moraine walks down the table, her calm returned. Joya was nearly a head taller, but she had been dressed, also been dressed in silks, and no, no doubt who was in command of the situation. And Joya did not quite draw back, but her hands tightened on her skirts for a moment before she could master them. And Moraine's like, I've made arrangements that in four days you will be taken upriver by ship to Tarvalon and Tower. There, they are not so gentle as we have been. If you have not been, if you have not found the truth so far, find it before you reach South Harbor, or you will assuredly go to the gallows for the traitor's court. I won't speak to you again unless you send word that you have something new to tell, and I do not want to hear a word from you, not a single word, unless it is new. And believe me, I'll, it will save you the pain in Tarvalon. Avienda, will you tell the captain of, or the captain to bring in two of his men? Elaine blinks, and the Aiel woman just unfolds herself and vanishes through the doorway. Because, you know, Avienda could really not seem to be there sometimes. Like, she just blends in with his running. And Joya's face worked just like she wanted to talk, but Moraine just stared at her. And then, finally, the Shadow Sworn turns her eyes away. They glittered like a raven's black murder, but she holds her mouth and her tongue. According to Elaine's eyes, there was a golden-white glow suddenly surrounding Moraine, the glow of a woman embracing Sidar. Only another woman trained to channel could have seen it. This is a very important feature, and it's very specific. The glow of the woman embracing Sidar, only another woman trained to channel could have seen it. So there's a couple things that happen, where essentially, if you're a woman who can channel and you're near somebody who else can also channel, you can feel that they have the ability, but you can't see anything at first glance. So you'd have to like get pretty close to them to feel that they have it. And it's it's not a, like, you touch them kind of thing. It's like a a knowing. Like, it's, it'd be almost like if you were two magnets and you'd walk by one and it kind of like, you feel almost like a tug at you. That's kind of what it is, where it's it's not necessarily a... Uh, how would you call it? It's not a detraction from like one magnet to another magnet as much as it is a knowing like, I've seen this before. I know what this means. 
Um, but only another woman who's trained to channel could have seen it. Trained is the key word in this particular instance because uh, not everyone is trained that can use the one power. Like Nynaeve's not trained, but she can use the one power. So the interesting fact is that we're seeing this from Elaine's point of view, which means it's up in the air now because it could be Elaine's perspective, but then just like, well, what about if it's, you know, what about if it's a Egwene's perspective? And then it's like, no, it's shifting back over to Elaine. So we might as well just stick with Elaine then, I guess, at this point, since everything seems to be pointing at her. Um, But basically, women have to be trained to be channeled, and it, it pulls the perspective from Elaine rather than Egwene or Nynaeve. Nynaeve, I don't think, is train-trained because she's still got her block. She might still be able to see to some extent, but it doesn't go into detail how, like, how, what level of trained you have to be in order to, like, see it. Um, and it doesn't show us from Nani's perspective whether or not she does. So it's kind of iffy. But Egwene should be able to see it, but we only see it from Elaine. But then we also learn, um, that the flow is holding Amiko unraveled quicker than Elaine could have managed. And she's stronger than Moraine, at least, potentially. But here's the big thing, is that strength and the power does not equate to skill with the power. And this is something that people constantly forget, I feel like, because it's one thing to be like, I'm all powerful, but then not knowing how to like actually use your power to an extensive perspective. And it's, you know somewhat interesting in that regard where it's like yeah you might be more powerful than her but she's technically more skilled so she could probably beat you in a actual like duel if you were to have one like even if it was a training duel which is one of those interesting things because if you think about it with the way that they have the three o's worded they can't actually like utilize each other's skills to make them stronger like more skilled better users of the one power and all that type of stuff like imagine if i said i were allowed to spar with each other obviously not like burning each other to a cinders or whatever but like get to the point where they could you know work on cutting flows that are th flung at them or you know seeing if they could out shield somebody like they just take the first thing that's like oh well once you've embraced it it's pretty much impossible to seal you unless you have so many people doing it and it's just like well, try like if somebody's really powerful should they be able to do it up to obviously the 13 limit because the 13 limits basically been no matter how strong you are 13 get you that's just the basic rule but it's just it's weird that they don't have a way like a caveat i guess where you know, you can't use this as a, as a weapon unless you're training and you're not allowed to harm them, harm them. You're only allowed to, like, do some equivalence. So it's 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 really weird because, I mean, if you think about it from a knight perspective or a professional soldier or mercenary or something, they're going to be constantly training to get better. But instead, they're like, let's use the power, but not, like, use it in a real-life scenario into which you could become more powerful with it or have quicker reactions or, you know, all these different things. So it's, it's kind of strange. Maybe it's just because I think from a more security slash war viewpoint, 
from like history, historical purposes and stuff. And I don't think, obviously, the women of the tower have that kind of mentality. They're not thinking war. They're not thinking that. They're, they're thinking that they're on top of the world and everyone else is way below them. So thus, who could stand against us? And this is like, well, the white cloaks with bows or crossbows would be pretty easy, honestly. I mean, if you think about it, you have some people with um, crossbows trained on an Aes Sedai and her warder or just an Aes Sedai. She didn't have one. You go, Foomp! she drops like a dead bucket. And it's like, okay, well, we've removed a, white, a woman from the White Towers. Like, it's not too terribly difficult. <laughs> like, as long as they've got the basic skill to be able to shoot, you could take somebody out. I mean, heck, you don't even have to shoot. You just be walking by, walking by, and all of a sudden swing around and chop. Like, it's... it's this, this type of world, it's so much easier to kill somebody than people give them credit for because we live in a world with, like, security cameras, video cameras phone cameras, everything, everywhere. You're like, oh man, I, I couldn't pull off a crime of the century. You could in this world. It's not difficult. I mean, there's a lot of variables, but it wouldn't be nearly as difficult as it is today. Let's put it that way. So in the tower, the women teaching her had almost been unbelieving at her potential at Egwene's and Nynaeve's. Nynaeve was the strongest of them all when she could manage to channel. just kind of important detail <laughs> and again it goes back to the skill thing like if you can't channel because of your block or something else it makes sense that it doesn't matter how strong you are you just don't have the experience which is the next part because Moraine has the experience while they're still learning to do stuff, Maureen could do it basically half asleep. So there again, there's a level of skill and training involved. I just feel like in the combat area or whatever. And again, they didn't they haven't for thousands of years had any competition in terms of uh Black Aja versus the Tower or anything like that, openly fighting them and stuff. So I mean, to some extent it's it makes sense that they're not quite there yet. But I still feel like it would, it would have been better to do the whole sh iron sharpens iron kind of thing. Um, but yeah. But there's some things that Elaine could do and the other two that Aes Sedai couldn't. And that's just a little bit of satisfaction considering how easily Joya was cowed by Moraine. But Amiko turns around and becomes aware of Moraine. And then she kind of like squeaks and drops a curtsy like a new novice. And Joya is glaring at the door, avoiding anyone eyes but not Eve, you know crosses her arms and she's gripping her braid and giving Maureen basically a stare as murderous as Joya's but Egwene fingers her skirt and glowered at Joya Elaine just frowns wishing she was brave like Egwene didn't feel like she was betraying her friend but then the captain walks in with two defenders and black and gold on his heels but Avienda wasn't with them she had taken an opportunity to escape Aes Sedai the grizzled officer, two short white plumes on his rimmed helmet, shield, or shied his eyes as they met Joya's, but she didn't seem to have even seen him. And his gaze scares away from woman to woman uncertainly, and the mood of the room was trouble, and a wise man did not want part of any trouble among this sort of women. <laughs> this sort of women. Key, key phrase. The two soldiers clutched their tall spears to their sides, almost as if they feared they might have to defend themselves, and they probably did fear it. Moraine's like, you will take these two back to their cells. Repeat your instructions. I want no mistakes. 
And he, he's like, yes, and almost says I Sedai, but then he switches switches it over to my lady because obviously the tyrants have, are not familiar with I Sedai in their country, and it's a little weird. He's like, well, the prisoners are to talk to no one except myself, not even each other, 20 men in the guard room, and two outside each cell at all times, four if a cell door has to be open for any reason, and I myself will watch their food prepared and take it to them. All as you have commanded, my lady. It's a bit of a question, but a hundred rumors floated through the stone concerning the prisoners and why two women needed to be guarded so heavily. But there were whispered stories about the Aes Sedai, each darker than the last. And I was like, very good, take them. And it wasn't clear who was more eager to leave the room, the prisoners or the guards. Even Joya stepped quickly, as if she could not bear silent near the Morainer at another moment. But Elaine was certain she had to keep her face calm since she entered the room, but Egwene came over to her and he's like, What's the matter, Elaine? You look about to cry. And she had this concern in her voice that made Elaine want to burst into tears. And she's like, Oh, I won't be silly. I will not. And Lini had a saying like, A weeping woman is a bucket with no bottom. Which, to be fair, is kind of true. Um, and then he was like, Three times, only three. You consented, or consented to help us question them. And this time you vanish before we begin, and now you calmly announce you are sending them off to Tarvalon. If you're not going to help, at least don't interfere. And Morin's like, don't presume on the Amarlin's authority too far. She may have set you to chase Leandrin, but you are only accepted and woefully ignorant, which is very true, despite the letters you carry. Or do you mean to keep questioning them forever before reaching a decision? You two rivers people seem to work at avoiding decisions that must be made. And this is probably aimed mostly at Rand. I would give a lot of money on a bet to say that it was at least 90% Rand. The rest of it would be Nynaeve and Egwene. And Nynaeve kind of trying to respond to this, their eyes bulging, working her mouth, and trying to figure out which accusation to answer. But Moraine turns to Egwene and Elaine. He's like, pull yourself together, Elaine. How can you carry out the Amarlin's orders if you think every land has the customs you were born to? I don't know. I don't know why you're so upset. Don't let your feelings hurt others. And Wayne's like, what? What are you talking about? What customs? And then Elaine's kind of like in her sobbing stage. She's like, Marilyn was in Rand's chambers. And Maureen gave her a reproachful look inside. He's like, I could have, I would have spared you this if I could, Egwene. If Elaine had not let her disgust with Marilyn overcome her sense, the customs of Mayan are not those either of you were born to. And this is another thing: is that when I talk to people about the Wheel of Time, people constantly look at it from a you know modern era lens like how we do things now in like america or europe or you know the more westernized type places and it's like you do realize that not every culture and every country has the same standards and everything like a lot of countries even in the european countries have extremely different standards on how uh, ways of living relationships um, what you can do in public, what you can't do in public, you know, a whole bunch of things. Like, there's a ton of things that different rules that every country has. If they all had the same rules, they might as well all be the same government. Like, it wouldn't be the same country. Why would you have multiples of different ones, other than obviously politicians? But in this situation, it's like people like to comment, especially like things like Man or the IEL, which we'll get to at some point. And, uh, there's other ones. And sometimes they like them, like uh, Altaro's 
lot of people like Altara's customs, but they don't like the Aiel's customs um, or Mayan's customs. And it's just like, I, people miss the fundamental point of this. Robert Jordan didn't create uh, a whole world for you to decide what the world looks like as much as he decided, he designed the world to describe how the world in Wheel of Time is to you as the reader so you can understand the interactions between characters, countries, uh, I shouldn't say nations, they don't really use the word countries, um, how, how they actually like work together or are completely different. And this is one of the cool things about Wheel of Time is that every nation is so different that when you go there, it's it's a completely different feeling. Like, it legitimately has a different sense of, I guess, like, exotic exoticism or something like that. Like, going to uh, Tyr is different than going to Mirandi or different than going to Saldea. Like, the people dress differently. Um, people are different height. Like, Kyrian, everyone's really short comparative to Andorans, Tyrans, etc., Ilianers. It's just Kyrian and people are short. And that's cool because otherwise if everyone was the same height and everyone dressed the same way and everyone liked the same music, it's like it'd be a very boring world. But people are so comfortable with their modern era mindset that they don't think about the, the, the fun of seeing a world and imagining a world where things are different. Because like if, you've, if you grew up in the United States or in Europe or somewhere in the world, but that's all you've ever experienced. And people like like kids back in the day, even back to like medieval time periods and probably even more, always would like dream of like, what would it be like to go travel the world and discover new things, discover new people? We all have that at the touch of a button on the internet nowadays. You don't have that in those time periods. They don't have that in this time period. So seeing something and exploring the world is actually exciting. But to a person now reading the book they're like no oh, no 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 no. it has to be like what i want it to be and that's kind of what moraine's calling out to elaine because elaine was thinking that everyone would follow the rules that and the customs that her country has or her nation damn it <laughs> i'm trying to remember they don't have countries they have nations um and basically that's why moraine's kind of like you know get it together like seriously um and he's like, I know you feel it, but you have to realize that nothing can come of it, Egwene. He belongs to the pattern and to history. But Egwene looks into Elaine's eyes, and Elaine wanted to look away, but couldn't. And then Egwene leaned closer, whispering behind a cupped hand. He's like, I love him, but like a brother, and you like a sister. I wish you well of him. And her eyes widen up, and a smile pops on her face, and she gives Egwene a hug back. But hers a little bit more fiercer. She's like, oh, thank you. I love you too, sister. Thank you. And Egwene's like, oh, she got it wrong. Have you ever been in love, Moraine? And this is this is a a major point because some people had this idea of like the relationships of the series and how they're supposed to do. And this is kind of like a major point for the Moraine question. And Elaine can't imagine Moraine ever being in love because, you know, Moraine's blue Aja and blue sisters gave all their passions to causes. 
But Moraine, in her slender form, wasn't taken on it back at all. But then she looks levelly at the pair of them, each with an arm around the other, and she's like, I could wager I know the face of the man I will marry better than either of you knows that of your future husband. And that's kind of like, a, oh, wow, she already knows the man she's going to marry. And we're like book four or 15. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's that's impressive. But then it gets even better. And Egwene's like surprised and gaping, her mouth open. And Elaine's like, oh, who? And he's like, well, perhaps I only mean we share an ignorance. Do not read too much into a few words. Which it's like she's trying to dodge it now. <laughs> Like, like, oh, I told you. Uh, shoot, I, I don't want to tell you. And notice she, just, notice she doesn't say, I mean, we share an ignorance. She says, perhaps, which is an Aes Sedai form of, you know, dodging the question or dodging the bullet. And then she looks at Nynaeve and she's like, well, should I ever choose a man? Should I, should I say? It will not be land. That much I will say. And Nynaeve didn't like to hear it. Which... I find odd because that should be a good thing for her. But Nynaeve had what Linny would have called a hard patch to hoe. Loving not just a warder, but a man who tried to deny returning her love. Full man that he was, he talked of the war against the shadow. He could not stop fighting and could never win. Of refusing to dress Nynaeve in widow's clothes for her wedding feast. Silly things like that. I'm like, <laughs> the man's being considerate. Even though it hurts him just as much as it hurts her. And they're like, eh, it's silly. Which, in some ways, you could accept that it is silly. But, like, he's literally just, like, doomed to die, essentially. And Elaine doesn't see how Nynaeve puts up with it. She's not a very patient woman. Well, everyone who knows Nynaeve knows that. But believe it or not, patience can be learned. And Nynaeve's like, well, if you're done chatting about men... Maybe we can get back to what's important. He's like, oof. Oof, Nynaeve, that's, that hurts. I feel that to my bones. But she grips her braid really hard and picked up speed and force like a water wheel with the gears and, and disengaged. He's like, so, how are we supposed to decide whether Joy is lying or Amiko if you send them away or if they're both are or neither of them? I don't want to dither here, no matter what you think, but I have walked into too many traps to want to walk into another. And I don't want to run after Jacko the Wisps. You know, we got we are the ones who Omerlin sent after the Leandrin and her cronies, but you do not seem to think that they're important enough to spare more than a moment to help us. The least you can do is not crack our ankles with a broom, which is a fair point. But it seemed like she was about to rip her braid free just to try to strangle Moraine with it, but Moraine had this dangerously cool crystalline calm that just suggested me be able to teach the lesson holding under her tongue that she had told Joya. Elena said it was time to stop moping. She's like, well, you might want to add to your list to what you want to know. Why we were summoned to Rand. That is where uh, Kareen took us. He's all right now, of course. Maureen healed him. And she thought of the brief glimpse inside of his chamber and she kind of had a little shudder. And then he's like, healed? What happened? And Maureen's like, well, he almost died. Like she's sipping her tea. And like, he almost died. <laughs> Egwene felt, or Elaine felt Egwene tremble. And, you know, they're listening to Moraine's dispassionate report. But some of the trembling was her own. Bubbles of evil drifting through the pattern. Reflections leaping out of mirrors. Rand a mass of blood and wounds. 
almost like an afterthought. Moraine was like, yeah, Perrin and Matt probably experienced the same thing kind of thing, but escaped unharmed. <laughs> They're like, the woman must have ice instead of blood. No, she was heated enough about Rand's stubbornness. And she wasn't cold when she spoke of marrying, however much she pretended to be. There's another piece of the puzzle to her. I I could wager I know the face of the man I will marry better than either, and either of you knows the face of your future husband. Bold of you to assume that either of them will get in, married, but yeah, there's that. But she's like discussing whether a bolt of silk was the right color for a dress. That's just how she's talking. And Egwene's like, so these things, these bubbles of evil are going to just keep happening? Is there nothing we can do to stop it or that Rand can do? And the small blue stone dangled from Moraine's hair it swung as she shook her head. He's like, well, not until he learns to control his abilities. And probably not even then, which is actually more accurate. Um, I don't know if he will be strong enough to push the, the miasma away from himself, but maybe he will be a better to defend himself next time. And he's like, well, can't you do something? You're supposed to be one of those who knows everything, or at least acts like they do. Can't you just teach him a little bit of it? Don't quote Proverbs about birds teaching fish to fly. And Moraine's like, well, you would know better if you had taken the advantage of your studies that you should have. You should know better. You want to know how to use the power, Nani, but you do not care to learn about the power. And then now we, as the viewer, get another lesson on it that we probably already know, but it's kind of a refresher course. Sidene is not Sidar. The flows are different, and the ways of weaving are different. The bird has a better chance. So, and that's always been a funny saying, you know, a bird teaching a fish to fly, because there are flying fishes and there are swimming birds. It's totally different, unrelated, but I just wanted to throw that out there. So, the flows being different, in other words, how they, like, I... It's, it's more tied to, like, Sidar is very calm, and you surrender to it, and, you know, you just go down, floating down the river kind of thing. Where Sidene is, like, fighting an oncoming flood that's blasting through you kind of thing, and you have to fight your way through it to kind of, like, take control. And then the ways of weaving are going to be different because one's, like, a fine silk, and one's more like a rough wool. And they're just, they're vastly different. One's more tough, one's more elegant. And it kind of represents the men and women opposing sides. I don't like to say opposing sides in like military or fighting or conflict, but like in terms of their differences are a little bit more specific to each other. But. Egwene's like, well, what is Rand being stubborn about now? And he's like, well, he can be naive being, like, he can be stubborn as a stone sometimes. They all knew how true that was. Moraine's looking at them, he's like, oh, well, he has to move. Instead, he just sits here, and the tyrants already begin to lose their fear of him, except when he shows up. Um, he sits here, and the longer he sits, doing nothing more, the Forsaken will see his inaction as a sign of weakness, or it's a ploy. There's, 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 there's a lot of ways you could look at this from a strategic perspective. The pattern moves and flows. Only the dead are still. He must act or he will die. From a crossbow bolt in his back, or poison in his food, or the forsaken banding together to rip his soul from his body. He has to act or die. And like, 
I mean, if all the if all the Forsaken showed up right this instant, he wouldn't ho he wouldn't stand a chance. Not a hope of a prayer. None of the, the Moraine, the three girls and their lackluster training abilities and skill. Um, not the entire Tyrant military, even if they wanted to join them or to join Rand, uh, wouldn't be able to stop the Forsaken. They would just come through and just wreck them. It's just because the one thing Rand's got going for him is that Forsaken dislike each other pretty much about as much as they dislike Rand. And Nynaeve's like, well, and you you obviously know what he has to do, don't you? You've got it planned all out. And Moraine's like, would you rather he go off herring alone once more? I can't risk it, and this time he might be dead or worse before I find him. They're like, well, okay, yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's true. Rand doesn't really know what he's doing. But Elaine's sure that Moraine had no wish to lose the little guidance she still gave him. This little he allowed her to actually give. And Gwen's like, well, will you share your plan with uh, for him with us? And Elaine's like, yes, please. And she doesn't want to do confrontation with Moraine. And her mother always said it was better to guide people than try to hammer them into line, which is true. Though some people don't like being guided. So it depends on the person that you're dealing with. Um, if you If you give them the only option as the one you want them to take, and remove everything else. It's not nearly as bad as trying to like, come on, go this way, go this way. It's different ways to guide, different ways to... It's it's a long, convoluted, interesting, crazy, weird thing that, you know, it depends. It's, it's a piece-by-piece, instance-by-instance basis. But they're like, all right, as long as you understand that you must keep it to yourselves, a plan revealed is a plan doomed to fail but I see you do understand. But Elaine definitely does see it because the plan was dangerous and Moraine's not sure it would work. And this is Moraine's plan. Samael is an Ilion. The Tyrants are always as ripe for war with Ilion as the other way around. They have been killing each other off and on for a thousand years. And they speak of their chance for it as other men speak of the next feast day. That's kind of telling us a bit about Ilion and Tyr's relationships to each other. The Tyrans despise the Ilioners. The Ilioners despise the Tyrans. They want each other both completely wiped off the map. Like, they absolutely hate the other. And either one would take the chance to take over the other one's uh, boundaries and their cities and just wipe the floor with their people and then replace it with their own. Which would definitely benefit one of their, whichever nation came out on top, a lot more than just being where they're at. But even if Ilion was to know about Samael's presence, or Tyr knew about Samael's presence, I don't think anything would change for the Tyrants, especially um, with the Dragon Reborn to lead them. Tyr will follow Rand eagerly enough that. In that enterprise, and if you bring Samuel down, and now he's like, "What? You want not only want him to start a war, you want him to seek out one of the Forsaken? No wonder he's being stubborn. He's not a fool for a man." I'm like, "Well, I mean, we kind of established this whole chapter with everyone thinking he's a fool and stubborn to boot." And Moraine's like, "Well, he's got to face the Dark One in the end. Do you think he could really avoid the Forsaken now? You know, 
As for war, there are wars enough without him, and everyone worse than useless. But Elaine's like, but any war is useless. Then she kind of like, comprehension fills her, and sadness and regret begin to show on her face, but she definitely had comprehension. And her mother had lectured her often on how a nation was led, as well as how it was governed. Very different things, but both necessary. And sometimes things had to be done for both that were worse than unpleasant, although the price of not doing them was still worse. But Moraine recognizes and gives her a sympathetic look, and she's like, it's not always pleasant, is it? Your mother began when you were just old enough to understand, I suppose, teaching you what you will need to rule after her. And Moraine had grown up in the royal palace in Kyrian, not destined to reign, but related to the ruling family, and no doubt overhearing the same lectures. Sometimes it seems ignorance would be better to be a farm woman knowing nothing beyond the boundaries of her fields. And he's like, riddles? War used to be something I heard about from peddlers, something far away that I don't really understand, but I know what it is now. Men killing men, men behaving like animals, reduced to animals, villages burned, farms and fields burned, hunger, disease, and death for the innocent as the guilty. What makes this war of yours better, Moraine? What makes it cleaner? But Moraine just turns to Elaine and lets her basically explain. But Elaine's not sure that even her mother sitting on the Lion Throne could have kept silent under Moraine's compelling, dark-eyed stare. And she begins reluctantly. War is going to come whether Rand begins it or not. And Egwene steps back, disbelief on her face. Same on Nynaeve. And incredulity just fades from both women as they continue on. The Forsaken are not going to stand idly and wait. Samael cannot be the only one to have seized a nation's reigns. Just the lone one we know. They will come after Rand eventually, in their own persons, perhaps, but certainly with whatever armies they command. And the nations that are free of the Forsaken? How many will cry glory to the Dragon Banner and follow him to Tarmon Gaiden? And how many will convince themselves the fall of the stone is a lie, and Rand is only another false dragon who must be put down? A false dragon perhaps strong enough to threaten them if they do not move against him first. One way or another, war will come. And it kind of reminds me of like Lord of the Rings, the, the trilogies where he's like, I will not risk open war. He's like, wars is upon you, whether you wish it or not. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, open war being upon you happens when you do nothing. If you just let them raid your lines or whatever, they're going to think you're weak and then they'll come take it by force. If you fight back against them, they'll take offense to it and they'll come at you at force. It's, there's always a means by which war will happen. So the real key point is essentially, despite war going to happen... How do you get around it? Or how do you make it your advantage? And that's what we're going to learn through the series. Moraine's like, all right, very good, but not complete. Nothing makes this war better or cleaner, except that it will cement the tyrants to him, and the Ilioners will end up following him just as the tyrants do now. How could they not once the dragon Menor flies over Ilion? Just the news of his victory might decide the wars in Terabon and Eradamon in his favor. There are wars ended for you, which is one of those interesting things. 
And she continues on. He's like, in one stroke, he will make himself so strong in terms of men and swords that only a coalition of every remaining nation from here to the Blight can defeat him. And with the same blow, he shows the Forsaken that he is not a plump partridge on a limb for the netting. That will make them wary and buy him time to learn to use his strength. He must move first, be the hammer, not the nail. He must move first. And what does he do? He reads. Reads himself into deeper trouble. I mean, to be fair, that's what a smart person would do while he's got time. Hanani's viewpoint, all she sees is the, all the battles, the death, while Egwene's dark eyes were large with horrified understanding, and Elaine kind of shivers seeing them. One had watched Rand grow up, the other had grown up with him, and now they're seeing him starting wars. Not the Dragon Reborn, but Rand Althor. But the thing is, is that, again, it's not even his fault, even if he goes out on, like, a massive campaign and, like, fights a whole bunch of people. Like, it's not his fault. Like, it's going to happen one way or the other. His existence demands it to happen by somebody. Imagine the White Cloaks. The White Cloaks and Amadis here are going to be like, oh, he's a false dragon. We're going to stop him. Uh, well, if they try to stop him, there's going to be war. Anybody they get to side with them, it's going to be war. Then you've got things like um, the Forsaken and their forces. Like, whoa, what are you going to be able to do? You can't do anything against that. But Egwene's like, how's the reading going to put him into trouble? Well, he has, he has to decide to find, or he has decided to find out for himself what the prophecies of the dragons say. And this is a tricky thing because prophecies in general are very rarely very literal. They're very much hidden in the in the fog, and what you hear isn't necessarily what it means. And it's like, well, they may they may have been prescribed in tier, but the chief librarian had nine different translations in a locked chest. Rand has them all now. And I pointed out that a verse applies here, and he quoted it to me from an old Kandori translation. Power of the shadow made human flesh, wakened to turmoil, strife and ruin. The reborn one, marked and bleeding, dances the sword in dreams and mist, chains the shadow sworn to his will. From the city lost and forsaken, Leads the spears to war once more. Breaks the spears and makes them see truth long hidden in the ancient dream. Tuck this away from later. It's like super relevant. Like crazy relevant. So tuck this one away later. I don't care if the rest of the book you just don't figure out what you're trying to do. Like this is important because this is heavily needed to happen but it's not necessarily how you think it might or how Moraine thinks it might. Now, from her perspective, she's like, it applies to this as well as it does to anything. Ileon under Samael is surely a forsaken city, leading the tyrant spears to war, chain Samael, and he has fulfilled the verse. Technically, you could swap that with literally any other male forsaken and it would do the same thing. The ancient dream of the dragon reborn, but he will not see it. He even has a copy in the old tongue, as if he understood two words. He runs after shadows, and Samael or Ravine or Lanfear may have him by the throat before I can convince him of his mistake. And Nynaeve, surprisingly, is gentle in saying he is desperate, and he's trying to find his way. 
And the, the, the gentle tone was for Rand, not for Moraine. And Moraine's like, I'm desperate. <laughs> I've dedicated my life to finding him, and I'm not going to let him just fail if I can prevent it. I'm almost desperate enough to, well, I will do what I must. And I'm thinking, like, what? What are you going to do? But Egwene's like, uh-uh, what, what you going to do? What you going to do? And Moraine's like, you have other things to worry about. The Black Aja. And she's like, no! It's coming from Elaine. You keep many secrets, Moraine, but tell us, what do you mean to do to him? And an image flashed in her mind of seizing Moraine and shaking the truth out of her. <laughs> I'm just thinking, whoo-wee! <laughs> Feelings for a dude can really uh, bring out the best in women. <laughs> It's like, well, due to him, nothing. Oh, well, you know, there's no reason you shouldn't know. But you've seen what the tyrants call the Great Holding. And then the viewers, us, the readers, listeners, whatever you want to call us, um, get a little backstory on what the Great Holding is. Oddly, for a people that feared the power so, the tyrants held in the stone a collection of objects connected to the power, second only to that in the White Tower. Elaine, for one, thought it was because they had been forced to guard Kalindor so long, whether they wanted to or not. Even the sword that is not a sword might seem less than what it was when it was one among many. But the tyrants never had been able to make themselves display their prizes. The Great Holding was kept in a filthy series of crowded rooms buried even deeper than the dungeons. When Elaine had first seen the locks on the doors had long since rusted shut, where the doors were not simply collapsed from dry rot. And he was like, well, we spent an entire day down there to see if Leandrin and her friends took anything. I don't think they actually did. Everything was buried in dust and mold. You'll take ten riverboats to transport it all to the tower. And I find this funny. Rand takes over a city and they're like, we're just going to take whatever we want. It's like, excuse me? <laughs> excuse me? He's like, well, maybe they have make sense of it there. I surely couldn't. But it's like, well, you know all of this if you had given us a little more time of your time. But Moraine doesn't really pay attention to it. She's like, well, there's one particular Tirangreal in the holding. A thing like a redstone door frame, subtly twisted to the eye. If I cannot make him reach some decision, I might have to step through. And the blue, the small blue stone on her forehead trembles, sparkling. Apparently she's not eager to take that step. But at the mention of Tirangreal, Egwene instinctively touched the bodice of her dress. She had sewn a small pocket there herself to hide the stone ring it now held. Now, in my case, I think this is kind of silly. Why would you make a pocket in in the clothes? Because if you get separated from your clothes in any shape, form, capacity of any type, you could lose whatever's in it. That just seems kind of silly to me. Especially when you're prone to getting captured by your enemies. Just throwing that out there. Like, figure out a better way to do it. Um, but yeah, so she's trying to remember the stone ring because Moraine is not one of the three women who knows that she has it. And there's only three women who knows that she has it. Um, they were strange things, Tirangreal. Fragments of the Age of Legends, like Angreal and Sa'angreal, if more numerous. Tirangreal used the one power instead of magnifying it. Each had apparently been made to do one thing and one thing alone. But though some were used now, no one was sure if those uses were anything like they had been made for. The oath rod, on which a woman took the three oaths on being raised to Aes Sedai, 
was a Tirong Real that made these oaths a part of her flesh and bone. The last test a novice took on being raised to accepted was inside another Tirong Real that ferreted out most of her heartfelt fears and made them seem real, or perhaps took her to a place where they were real. Odd things could happen with Tirong Real, and Aes Sedai had been burned out or killed or simply had vanished in studying them and in using them. Now, burned out is a term essentially where, depending on if it's a man or a woman, using the one power, uh, for a woman, if she, if she is stilled, where she's cut off, unable to ever channel again, um, if she does it to herself, would be considered burned out. Or if it's a man who is gentled, but in this case, does, does it to himself, burned out. That's what burned out means. There's no actual literal fire. It's literally you just sever your connection to the one power through that. So it's not a pleasant experience. But you could also kill yourself by not knowing what something did and then it blows up or you get sucked into something and vanish forever. It's it's very different. And that could be just from studying them or actually using them. Well, he's like, yeah, I saw the door in the last room at the end of the hall. My lamp went out and I fell three times before I made it to the door. I was afraid to channel in there, even to relight the lamp. Most of it looked like rubbish to me. And I think the tyrant simply grabbed anything that might hint at being connected to the one power. But I thought if I channeled, I might accidentally empower something that wasn't rubbish, and who knows what it might do. Moraine's like, and if you had stumbled in the dark and fallen through the twisted doorway, that doesn't need channeling, just to step through. And then he's like, well, for what gain? He's like, well, to gain answers. Three answers, each true, about past, present, or future. And Elaine's first thought was the children's tale, Billy Under the Hill, but only because of the three answers. A second thought came to its heels, and not to her alone. And she speaks with Nynaeve and Egwene, or while they were still open in their mouths. It's like, well, then this solves our problem, Moraine. We could just ask whether Joya or Amiko is telling the truth. We can ask where Leandrin and the others are, and the names of the Black Aja still on the tower. And Egwene's like, well, we can ask what the thing is dangerous to Rand. Nynaeve's like, well, why haven't you told us before? Why have you gone on letting us listen to the same tales after day when we could just settle this by now. And Moraine does what any intelligent woman does and throws her hand in the air and is like, you three rush in blindly where land in a hundred waters would tread warily. Why do you think I have not stepped through? Days ago, I could have asked what Rand might do to survive and triumph and how he can defeat the Forsaken and the Dark One and how he can learn to control the power and hold off the madness long enough to do what he must. But none of them say anything, so she continues on. There are rules and dangers. No one may step through more than once, only once. You may ask three questions, but you must ask all three and hear the answers before you may leave. Frivolous questions are punished, it seems. But it also seems that may be serious or what might be serious for one can be frivolous coming from another. Most importantly, Questions touching the shadow have dire consequences. If you asked about the Black Aja, you might return, be returned dead or come out a gibbering madwoman, if you came out at all. As for Rand, I'm not certain it is possible to ask a question about the Dragon Reborn that does not touch the shadow in some way. You see, sometimes there are reasons for caution. And he just asked what every reader would possibly think the same thing, is how do you know this? 
the high lords haven't let any Aes study it, so from the filth down there, none of it's seen the sunlight in a hundred years or more. And Mori's like, yeah, probably longer than that. They ceased their collecting nearly 300 years gone. It was just before they stopped completely that they acquired this Tyrion Grail. Up until, up until then, it was in the possession of the firsts of Mayenne, who used its answers to help keep Mayenne out of Tyr's grasp. And they allowed Aes Sedai to study it, in secret, obviously. Mayenne had never dared anger Tyr too openly. So we actually get some semblance of, like, here's a logical reason as to why this is the way it is. Like, how does she know all these things? Well, here's an answer. It's not just willy-nilly thrown in there. And then he's like, well, if it's so important to Mayan, why is it here in the stone? And she, we get a little history lesson about the first to Mayan. It's like, well, they've made bad decisions as well as good in trying to keep Mayan free of tear. And 300 years ago, the High Lords were planning to build a fleet to follow Mayan in your ships and find the oil fish shoals. Halvar, the then first, raised the price of Manier lamp oil well above the oil from Tyr's olives, and to further convince the High Lords that Mayan would always put its own interests behind those of Tyr, made them a gift of the Tyr Angreal. He had already used it, so it was no further good to him, and he was almost as young as Berlin is now, apparently with a long reign ahead of him and many years of needing Tyron goodwill. But Elaine chips in and was like, oh, Mother says he was a fool and would never make such a mistakes. Moraine's like, well, maybe not, but then Andor is not a small nation cornered by a much larger and stronger. Halvar was a fool, as it turned out. The High Lords had him assassinated the very next year. But his foolishness does not does present me with an opportunity, if I need it. A dangerous one, but it's better than none. But Egwene's like, well, now we have to figure out who's lying or whether they both are. Moraine's like, well, question him again if you want to. You have until they are put on a ship. Though I very much doubt either will change her tale now. My advice is to concentrate on Tanjiko. If Joya speaks truly, it will take Aes Sedai and Warders to guard Mazrum Taim, not just the three of you. I send a warning to the Amarlin by Pigeon when I first heard Joya's story, but I actually sent three to make sure one actually, you know, gets to the tower. And Elaine's like, so kind of you to keep us informed. And Maureen does a go her own way because they're only pretending to be full Aes Sedai. It doesn't mean Maureen has to keep them all in the dark. The Amarlin did send them to hunt the Black Aja. And Maureen, you know, inclines her head and as if accepting the thanks for real. It's like, you're welcome. Remember that you are the hounds of the Amarlin seat set after the Black Aja. And she has a little of a smite, slight smile. And she's like, the decision on whether to course must be yours, but... You've pointed that out to me as well. I trust it'll prove an easier decision than mine, and I trust you will sleep well, what sleep is left before daybreak. Good night to you. She, you know, does her thing. Wayne's like, that woman, sometimes I could almost strangle her. It's like, I feel like Nynaeve would be ahead of you in that room. <laughs> and Nynaeve's grunting in agreement. And they have a one pitcher full of wine rested in a gleaming bowl of now mostly melted ice. You might be asking, why is this an important detail? Why are you bringing this up? Because it was brought all the way from the spine of the world, packed in chests of sawdust. Ice in the summer to chill a High Lord's drink. There's an entire industry for this. Is that not crazy? And how in the world is ice and sawdust a thing? Like... I'm assuming sawdust would be like some form of a 
I don't know, insulation type thing. But once you put ice, like I'm assuming, it makes sense that they put it in a container and stick it in sawdust, but they make it sound like they just take ice and stick it in sawdust and that's good. I'm just like, but then you're sticking the sawdust covered ice into your food or do you, they stick the whole goblet into it like a freaking part? <laughs> I don't even know. It's just amazing that that's how they do it in kind of like a early Renaissance period. It's like, blows my mind. Just a fun little thing I thought would be to talk about. And then he was like, well, cool drink before bed will do us good. Especially in the hot tier. But Elaine lifts her head and Egwene sits next to her and is like, well, did you mean what you said, Egwene, about Rand? You know what men used to say, all our jokes about sharing him? I sometimes wonder if it was a viewing she didn't tell us about. Very insightful. I thought she meant we both loved him and she knew it, but you had the right to him and I didn't know what to do. Still, I still don't, but he loves you, Egwene. And Egwene's like, well, then he'll just have to be put straight. When I marry, it's because I want to, not because a man expects me to love him. I'm like, oh, yeah, how strong and independent of you, but that's not how prophecies or whatever work, but okay. I'll be gentle with him, Elaine. Before I'm done, he'll know he is free, whether he wants to be or not. <laughs> I won't marry just because a man expects me to, but he's going to expect, or he's going he's gonna to have to accept what I want out of this. And it's like, oh, okay, okay. That works both ways, I suppose. <laughs> My mother says men are different from us. <gasps> How dare she? She says we want to be in love, but only with the one we want. A man needs to be in love, but he will love the first woman to tie a string to his heart. I mean, one could argue that is true. I'm sure a lot of people have had that experience in their uh, marriage relationship. Elaine's like, well, that's very well, but Bear Lane was in his chambers, and, and he was bleeding from head to toe, so unless she did that to him, I don't think a whole lot was going on. And Egwene's like, well, whatever she intends, Berylene won't keep her mind on one man long enough to make him love her. Two days ago, she was casting eyes at Ruark, which, you know, ideal guy that's married. Good luck. Uh, and two more, she'll be smiling at someone else. She's like Elsa Grinwell. You remember her? The novice who spent all her time out in the practice yards, fluttering her eyelashes at the warders. And she's like, oh, she wasn't just flattering her, fluttering her eyelashes in his bedchamber at this hour. She was wearing even less than usual, if that's possible. But then Egwene's like, well, so are you going to give him to her? And he's like, no! Oh, I don't know what I want to do. I love him. I want to marry him. Light, what would mother say? I'd rather spend a night in joyous cell than listen to the lectures my mother will give me. And Dora Nobles, even in royal families, married commoners often enough that it would hardly occasion comment. In Andor, at least. But Rand was not exactly the usual run of commoner. Her mother was quite capable of actually sending Linny to drag her home by the ear. And Gwen's like, well, Morgays can hardly say much if Matt is to be believed, or even half-believed. The Lord Gabriel your mother is mooning after hardly sounds the choice of a woman thinking with her head. And of course, this is where Elaine kind of throws out intelligence and just like, I'm sure he exaggerated because her mother's too shrewd to make herself a fool over any man. It's like, well, under normal circumstances, normal circumstances. Yeah. Morgays will give him a rude awakening if he thinks he could dream to get power through her. So, Nynaeve brings three goblets of spice wine. He's like, well, you discovered you're in love with Rand, Elaine, and Egwene has discovered she isn't. And the other two gape at her. One dark, the other fair. And 
a near mirror image of astonishment. And I was like, I have eyes. And ears, when you don't take the trouble to whisper. And she just sips her wine as, a, as her voice grows cold when she continues. Like, what are you going to do about it? If that chit, Berylene, has her claws into him, it will not be easy to pry them loose. And are you sure you want to go to the effort? You know that what he is. You know what lies ahead of him. Prophecies aside, madness, death. How long does he have? A year? Two? Will it be getting after summer's end? He's a man who can channel. Remember that you were taught. Remember what he is. Elaine just stares into Nynaeve's eyes and doesn't flinch. Doesn't matter. Maybe it should, but it doesn't. I'm probably being foolish, but I don't care. I cannot change my heart to order, Nynaeve. But then Nynaeve smiles. It's like, I have to be sure. you got to be sure. It isn't easy loving any man, but loving this man will be harder yet. My first question has yet to be answered, though. What do you mean to do about it? Berylaine may look soft. She certainly makes men see her so, but I do not think that she is. She will fight for what she wants, and she's the kind to hold hard to something she doesn't particularly want just because somebody else wants. Which, tuck that away for later. Egwene's like, I want to stuff her into a barrel and ship her back to Mayenne in the bottom of the hold. And he's <laughs> swings around, and she's like, all very well, but Try to offer advice that helps. If you cannot, keep silent, let her decide what she must do. But Egwene just stares at her, and she's like, Nynaeve continues, like, Rand is Elaine's to deal with now, not yours. You have to step, you have stepped aside, remember? But that should have made Elaine smile, but it doesn't. And this is all supposed to be different, she sighs. I thought I'd meet a man, learn to know him over a month or years, and slowly I would come to realize I loved him. That is the way I always thought it would be. I hardly know Rand. I've talked to them no more than half a dozen times in the space of a year. But I knew I loved him five minutes after I first set eyes on him. That was foolish. But it was true, and she didn't care if it was foolish. She would tell her mother the same to her face. And Leany. Well, perhaps not Leany. Leany had drastic ways of dealing with foolishness, and she seemed to think Elaine had not aged beyond ten. As matters stand, though, I don't even have the right to be angry with him. Or Marilyn. I'd like to stas in her in her mind she's like, I'd like to slap his face till his ears ring for a year, and I'd like to switch her all the way to the ship that takes her back to Mayenne. But she did not have the right, and that made it worse. Very infuriating. She's like, Well, what can I do? He's never even looked at me twice. Egwene's like, well, I got some ideas for you. You know, in the two rivers, if a woman wants a man to know she's interested in him, she puts flowers in his hair at Beltine on Sunday, and maybe she might embroider a feast day shirt for him any time. Or make a point of asking him to dance and no one else. Elaine just gives her this incredulous look. She's like, I'm not suggesting you embroider a shirt, but there are ways to let him know how you feel. Elaine goes in and is like, Manners believe in speaking out. Maybe that's the best way. Just tell him right out. At least he'll know how I feel then, and I'll have some right to. But then she just grabs a spice wand, tilts her head back, and just chugs. Speak out like some manner hussy? What will mother say? And he's like, well, what's more important is what you will do when we have to leave here. Whether it's Tanchico or the tower or somewhere else, we will have to go. 
What will you do when you just told him you love him and you must leave him behind? If he asks you to stay with him. If you want to go. She's like, well, I will go. Not with him. <laughs> if I must accept him being the Dragon Reborn, he must accept that I am what I am. That I have duties. I want to be Aes Sedai, Nynaeve. That isn't some idle amusement. Neither is the work that we three have to do. Could you really think I'd abandon you and Egwene? Egwene was like, oh, it never crossed my mind. But Nynaeve kind of, hers was a little too slow. I was like, yeah, definitely. But Elaine looked at from them. He's like, in truth, I feared you might tell me I was foolish fretting over a thing like this when we have the Black Aja to worry about. And the flicker of Egwene's eyes is like, eh, the thought did occur to me. But Nynaeve's like, well, Rand's not the only one who might die next year or next month. We might too. Times are not what they were, and we cannot be either. If you sit and wish for what you want, you may not see it this side of the grave. Which is a pretty powerful statement if you think about it. But it's a bit of a chilling reassurance, but Elaine nods and she's like, I'm not being silly. If only the Black Audra could be settled so easily. But she, you know, pushes the empty silver goblet to her forehead for coolness. What were they going to do? And that's the end of the chapter. So, I think I can definitively say that it's Elaine's perspective. Because <laughs> at no point does it seem to pull from Egwene's perspective. It just has Egwene comment from time to time. So what do you guys think? Did you find it to be highly entertaining? Something that helped you learn a bit more about the world, world building, um, the people, the cultures, the nations, anything like that. Did you see any comparisons about the nations to real world nations? Did you notice any of the mixtures that they might have brought into the equation? Whatever it might be. Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, hopefully you found it as enjoyable as I do to entertain you guys with it. So uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me for any type of uh, message, comment, concern, anything like that, any bit I might have missed, or if you want to put your own theories in or anything like that, you can get a hold of me um, through several different ways. One, direct email, which is talesofregarm at gmail.com. Uh, two would be Twitter slash X, um, which is at Tales of Red Arm. On Facebook, just Tales of Red Arm. Um, comment on a post or anything like that and whatever. Uh, you can also join the Discord, which should be in both Twitter slash X and Facebook. Um, should be something there to access it. If it is not there, or the link doesn't work for whatever reason, just send me an email through talesofredarm at gmail.com. I will get you a link, and you can join in, and we can chat verbally um, like this, or we can just chat over text, and you guys can tell me what you guys are thinking, and we can have a fun time discussing all the time and invite your friends, family, anybody you think that might enjoy the series and uh, might enjoy getting little snippets of information that are focused points as we go along to help you kind of figure out the world. Because sometimes people read the series ten times and won't learn half of this stuff. 
um, because there's there's just so much in the world. It's hard to keep track of it all. But um, yeah, so let me know if you guys uh, want to hear anything particular or if I left something out. Love to hear from you guys. We'll go ahead and call it there. We got chapter seven coming up and hopefully it's a little bit of a shorter uh, chapter because these chapters, they, they're really drawing them out for this whole book, but we're not quite to the first quarter of the book done, but we're getting close. A lot of this stuff will seem to take up more and more time as things start happening faster and faster. So don't worry. It's it'll, once it rolls, it rolls. So uh, thanks everybody for hanging out. I look forward to jumping into chapter seven with you. So we'll see you around. Until then. We drink all night and dance all day, and on the girls we'll spend our pay. And when we're done, then we'll awake to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and several the girls be they short or tall, and follow young Matt wherever he goes to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall, and some of the girls be they short or tall, then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll give a yell with a bloody curse and hug the maids, it could be worse. Let's ride away with the dark ones first to dance with Jack of the Shadows. Yeah. Yeah.